I like seeing that the world has potential, I guess. And some people call it wonder. That feeling of opening people up to something new was important to me. And that's what I carried with me when I went from magic into all the other things that I learned how to do. Hey, I'm Scott Neri, and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and here we are together again looking for the light and finding the light in the darkness to prove this still is a world gone good. You can help us spread the good by sharing, subscribing, rating, and or reviewing our show. It just takes a simple minute or two, and we especially appreciate those reviews. They really do help others find us and join us. For all of you out there who have done these things already, we say, as always, thank you. So we're getting back to the good basics here on World Gone Good. Our last episode, we explored change, change gone good. And today, we're going deep, a deep dive into wonder, wonder gone good. Now, Wonder means different things to different people. But here's a question to ask yourself to get it all started. Do you still believe in wonder? I put the word still in there because when we're growing up, okay, I'm going to speak for I, I, okay, only for me. Okay. When I was growing up, my mind was way open to everything. And that to me was the magic of something as simple as wonder. Then I got older and life got in the way and expectations fell into place and you know, walls started going up around me, many of them I placed there myself, and to some degree, wonder faded. Not fully, but it wasn't as bright as it was when I was young. So I invited someone here to talk with us about the good of wonder, refinding it and keeping it close to our hearts. And that person is a guy named Scott Neary, who is truly one of the most unique humans I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. This is his good wander into wonder. So we haven't spoken in some time. Life has been a little crazy, I imagine. But I want to take you back, and I want to take my audience back to how we first met, because if memory serves me right, we met because you were doing a, was it a pancake show, you called it? Yes. (laughs) Will you tell everybody what a pancake show was and possibly still is? Because this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) Well, I don't know where I met you, but. I do a pancake flipping show. So I cook a pancake on stage and I flip it under my leg and behind my back and I spin around and catch it. I do a while the pancake's cooking, I do juggling and contortion and comedy. And um, that's what I've been doing for a long time. And I met you, I think you had this show that you produced. It was a competition, a one-man show competition called 15 Minutes of Him. And it was... um, one of the first things that I did in Los Angeles. It was 2005, I think, right? It sounds about right, yeah. Okay, so 
I came from San Francisco where I was producing a cooking show on stage in a theater every week for a year. And it, um, it was, I had my own theme song and I felt pretty good about it. I had a, my name and theme song. I had my picture on a billboard and, and then I was headlining this burlesque show every weekend too. And I just felt like I was dominating San Francisco and I wanted to move to a bigger place and move to, cause I just kind of always saw myself as an underdog. I moved to LA to be in a bigger pond and I came, I, um, got into this show that you're producing this competition that you're producing and the competition was judged by the audience, but I didn't really have friends in town. So, um, the audience was mostly made up of other performers, friends. It was all made up of other performers, friends and the people, other people in the industry and cool people. And well, it was like so complicated. First I won the thing. I didn't have a car. So I just like carried all my stuff home with nobody to celebrate with. And so there I was like winning, but also not feeling it. It was such a weird mixed feeling. Like a lot of performers would just go like, I'm dominating. This is where I want to be. Like a lot of performers just want an audience to clap for them. I don't want that. I want to transform an audience and I wanted to keep transforming myself. So I was like really bummed out at that point in my life. It makes it sound like your competition was bad for me, but it was actually a major point in my life where I had to examine whether I wanted to be an underdog constantly for all my life, struggling to always be accepted or if I wanted to accept my role as somebody who's worked really hard as a performer, as an entertainer, somebody who has something to offer and wants to raise the bar for everybody else. But I think there's some magic there because first of all, the the way that competition worked, and I've had a lot of the 15 minutes of femme women on this show is that it was a audience voting situation. And yeah, people would pack the place with their friends. And I had a very dear friend named Catherine, who very well may be listening right now. She packed the friend, the, her friends into the house one night. She had 61 people there, and she finished third. Her own father voted for somebody else. <laughs> and she herself came off the stage and said, God, I blew it. I, my energy was off. But here's the thing. I know I saw your pancake show somewhere, and I'm trying to remember if it was maybe uh, Alicia Brady was her name, I think. She had a show. I might have seen you there, but I saw you do your pancake show, Mm -hmm. and I saw this bright light of a guy on stage. And anyone listening, just so you know, Scott is this guy. He comes out, good-looking guy, tall guy, funny guy, and he leads with, do you guys want to see a pancake show? And we all go crazy. But then I sat there thinking, what the fuck is a pancake show? Yes, of course I want to see a pancake show. I always wanted there to be somebody one night stand up and be like, I saw the pancake show in the Moulin Rouge. And I did not appreciate it. I will be leaving right now. You know what I mean? Like, This is what we do on the show. You connected, right? And such a simple thing. This is a guy who made a pancake on a in a pan – <laughs> with a tiny like what did you use you had like a hot plate yeah i have like 
a little gas stove, a little portable like caterer stove. And then he's juggling and he's flipping. He's doing all this shit. And then the pancake gets made. And we're like, what is he going to do with the pancake? Is he going to give me the pancake? What happens? (laughs) And then you start doing all this crazy shit with the pancake. But here's what I want to talk about with you. There's a connection there, right? And it's a connection connecting to the audience. And what is it for you? What is that good there? I like seeing that the world has potential, I guess. And some people call it wonder. That feeling of opening people up to something new was important to me. And that's what I carried with me when I went from magic into all the other things that I learned how to do on stage. And when I got into juggling, I really liked it because it was happening in the moment so I could connect with people more. They were more attentive. So like if they had seen somebody link rings together in a magic show, then that wasn't really happening for them right then. But if, but no matter what juggling was always happening right there, I could fail right there. So I like that. But then not everybody could connect with the juggling because they didn't know how hard it was. So like if I kept getting better and better at juggling, I would just be more alienating almost. And what I liked about flipping a pancake is I thought that a lot of people had tried to flip a pancake before or tried to cook (laughs) something. So if I doing that, doing manipulations with a pancake was a cool way to um, juggle and bring all the coolness of opening up the world opening up people's minds with juggling, with athleticism, but doing it in a way that was approachable to them. And the absurdity, I like the absurdity of the pancake too. And it's what I've done in all of the performing things that I've done. I've, I set up a little switch at the beginning because as soon as people can start judging and labeling the thing that I'm doing, they're not going to be engaged with what it is because they, they're going to see it as like something that they understand. So if I can kind of destabilize the audience with something weird, then that's awesome. So it serves those two purposes of both being completely weird and completely approachable. And completely present and in the moment. And I think that's one thing that you really shine at. We're working right now in this next set of shows that I'm doing, and you're a part of these shows, of really simplifying what good is. And so this is a question that I've been having for my guests. Um, Last show we just did was about change, about moving, about changing jobs, about getting a dog, and all the good with that. So here's a question I have for you. (laughs) It may be a big question. It may be a what the fuck question. But what is good about you? What is good about you? I um I don't believe in a universal good and bad so I'll start there. I feel like um I don't I I was raised in or not raised but my parents were agnostic and atheist and I rebelled against them by going to a fundamentalist Christian church. So I was really into the good and bad thing for a while but now I believe that my good is different and my intentions right now are mostly to give love to people to set up a legacy for my son who's two years old arlo and to make entertainment better in the world you're also a curator 
of other uh, art, weird, juggling, fun, and you put all that into a show called Booby Trap. Yes. Tell everybody what Booby Trap is, but start by telling everybody how much it costs to see Booby Trap and why it costs that amount, because I love this so fucking much. Go ahead. (laughs) Start there. Start with the price. Everybody caught that. (laughs) I caught it. Go ahead. (laughs) The the price of the ticket is $31.8008, because on a calculator upside down, it spells booby. (laughs) (laughs) I loved that when I was a kid. I loved turning a calculator upside down and seeing what numbers I could turn into letters. And I love booby. Um, so the, the show booby trap is the number one show on TripAdvisor in Los Angeles. It grew out of doing it weekly for almost five years without stopping. And it's circus and variety. And you could see 14 acts in a night with stand-up comedians, musicians, magicians, acrobats, contortionists, all kinds of stuff. So it's like, uh, it was a way for me to showcase those, those um, kind of entertainers that are great at what they do. And they do something that some people think is like for kids or that is just a flippant form of entertainment and i wanted to put it all on a pedestal and show the heart and humanity in it and show the power of what it can really do opening up adults yeah it's just like really great and it became like church for me too it was like in a it became like a a ritual where the community would come together because we'd have so many acts in a night and all these performers ended up coming back and visiting and watching and performing more and uh became this thing that happened every single wednesday night that was just like a great thing for the community and a great thing for live entertainment do you think the show reconnects people with wonder and the child stuff that we had as kids yeah and i think that it's not it's not even like a childish trait. It's just something that we often don't prioritize for ourselves. Uh, and it, and it comes up in different things. It comes up in like great movies that we see or whatever, um, or in our work. Like sometimes we really enjoy our work or we really enjoy a video game. I, I like all those things. I don't think, I don't think that live entertainment is the only way to get there, but I think that, that's where my, that's my wheelhouse and that's where my force is. And, um, I went through a lot of depression until I was like 30. I was probably depressed 50% of the time. And a lot of that came from a feeling that I needed to do more in the world. I felt like if there was a war that I needed to be a soldier and a politician, and I was never going to live up to doing enough to, to fix things. And in recent years, I've found that um, if I if I do the thing that I where my power is, if I do live entertainment, even if I'm just juggling on stage, I can do. Maybe I can use that power to connect people, uh, 
And maybe if people connect, they'll communicate more. And maybe if they communicate more, they'll be less ready for war. Or they'll be, they'll work together for solutions for climate change, or they'll um, stop hurting each other or whatever. Um, maybe I can make little changes through that. And um, I still see people doing great things in the world to cure cancer and stuff. And I sometimes feel bummed out. Um, but I, I, I've been trying to just remind myself to stick to the path. Hi. Hi, Arlo. I'm recording for a podcast right now. You talk, I'm talking. <laughs> um, yeah. You love being a dad. I love being a dad. My son comes in and waves at me like I'm a stranger. He's like, hi. <laughs> hi. Did you think you'd love being a dad? So until, until I really had a therapy revolution in my life, I didn't think I'd be a dad at all. I thought I'd be the kind of, if I was a dad, I'd be the kind of dad that I, my dad was, which was mean. And I thought that if I was a husband, I would be, I could only be a husband to somebody who's kind of sad, um, kind of angry, kind of boring, because I had to be an improvement to their, their life. Otherwise, I didn't want to be a husband. And I ended up marrying a very bubbly, very glowing, wonderful woman who's nurturing and kind and happy and exciting and talented. And, um, I ended up loving being a, a father because I see myself as capable in a completely different way. And you see yourself as enough. Yeah. And just by existing, I'm, I'm a boon to the people around me. So here's a question I ask a lot of my guests. It's a little bit of a deeper question, not that you haven't gone deep enough. Um, what would you tell 14-year-old you if you could go back talk to him, 13-year-old you? In elementary school, I was really popular. And then when I went to middle school, I got bullied. And We are the same person, my friend. The yeah. exact <laughs> same thing happened to me. Keep going. Keep going. Okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I was like, I was crying two weeks ago because I realized that Columbiana, Ohio, where I was raised, was a very conservative place. And they, my sister was like really bold and she really, she set up an environmental group, environmental like, yeah, club at school. And she threw concerts to, to fund, raise funds for, ecological causes and um she yeah she was bold and she got bullied and like somebody put a dead deer on her car and all kinds of stuff and i realized i was the reason i was crying was because i've been kind of struggling to even though i've been creative and i've done bold things in my life and i've left columbia and ohio i I feel like I've still been thinking that that would be the easy way out would be to go back to Columbiana to 
work a job until I'm 65 and then die when I'm 75 with a house in a rural area. And um, that would be the easy way out. And that what I did was um, what I'm doing is like a struggle to do. And I realized that this was like, because I had just been indoctrinated into this psychology of try to stay in the middle, just try to stay in this small margin of what's okay. So I was weird. I juggled and I did magic and stuff like that. But, and I rode a unicycle to school, but I was a black sheep and I, I wasn't, I wasn't some other animal. I was another sheep, but I was just the one that fit in as a weirdo. And so I don't know if it makes sense, but I, but I've just been like kind of struggling really hard, not feeling like I, like I'm getting ahead, but also trying to not achieve too much because I don't want to be ostracized. So. I had, I was crying in my kitchen for like an hour and talking to my wife about my goals and about what I'm trying to do and about how much I've been holding myself back with this mentality and thinking about the kid that in Colombiana that was trying to, it would have been, it isn't easier. It isn't easier to live in that house and die at 75. That's harder. Oh, I'm not, hell yeah. Yeah. I'm not like brave and it isn't about me being brave and create creative and courageous and working hard. It's about me letting myself grow. It's about letting myself free. And I thought about this. I'm just, am I going too long? No, not at okay. all. Listen, let me just, let me just say something really quickly here. I don't know one person who went to junior high or high school and said, I had a great junior high, high school. I felt amazing about myself. Everyone felt that way. Even the cool kids felt that way about themselves. And, and I've had this conversation with so many friends. I've had conversations with people who I thought then hated me, like who bullied me, who hated me, yeah. who now say to me, oh my God, you were the greatest kid. You were so funny and you were so inventive and you were so unique. And I was like, what? I was just trying to get through not getting killed every day. <laughs> yes. Right? But a key thing you said that I think so many people relate to, not only that, is staying there, staying in that place staying in that safety zone, that would not have been easier. That would have not been smarter or better in any way, shape, or form. I think that'd be 100% harder. I'll tell you one last quick thing. My friend Ray, he told me this story a long time ago. One of his brothers said to him 10 years ago, oh yeah, Ray, you know, in 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 10 years, I'm going to be retired. 10 years, I'll be happy. In 10 years, I just got to do this 10 more years. I'm going to be happy. In 10 years, I'm going to be happy. In 10 years, my friend Ray turned into his older brother and said, yeah, I'm happy right now. <laughs> yeah. And his brother just looked at him like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, why are you waiting 10 years? Like, that's your plan? You think that <laughs> you're going to flick a switch? In 10 years, everything's amazing. Yeah. Wow. 
you know, and that's the whole space-time continuum that I've just talked about on here recently is like, there's no 10 years from now. There's no 10 years previous. There's just right now. And the thing that like, the thing that like really clarified this whole problem for me was um, I thought about my friend who had worked for a corporate, he was a gardener for corporate indoor plants. So he would, all these, all these offices have plants and they, their interior designer puts, sets them up so that plants have to stay there for a long time and they have to keep staying alive. But the job of the gardener is to not let them die and not let them grow. So they're like, they're pruning them because if they grow, you know, they have to buy a new plant or they have to figure out a new design solution. So, um, so that's what his job was. And eventually he got bummed out. It was a lot of work and he just felt like he was, his whole day was trying to keep these plants from growing. So I thought about this thing. I thought about, this is what I'm doing. Like, how hard is it to make a plant grow? It's really easy. If you put a seed in the woods, it's done. All your work is done. But if you try to keep it inside this narrow threshold, then that's a lot of work and it takes hiring somebody to do it. And that's what I realized. Like I've been, if, if I were just like as weird as I wanted to be in school, I would have excelled at so many things. I would have achieved so many projects that I dreamed of. I would have become an entrepreneur faster. I would have done a whole bunch of things that could have been done better. And on another level, completely what you said earlier about your friend who had that job inside that building being the gardener, you said something very powerful, which is don't grow, but don't die. Yeah. Right. And that, that applies back to everything you've talked about. And I honestly think that you and I, and a lot of people listening and a lot of people around the world, you know, there has to be a struggle. Otherwise, there's no um, drive, right? Yeah. So you, we had to go through those times. I find that the people who peaked in I high school so. and peaked in junior high, <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. But the people, <laughs> the people who peaked in high school and junior high, and I know some of them, they're still talking about that. Yeah. And I'm like, that was it for you? You were 15. Like, I'm 52 and still trying to figure <laughs> shit out. But I'm making, you know, whatever happened, happen. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that struggle has value. Because <laughs> we both did a lot of it. <laughs> we end the show with two questions. It can go back to anything you've already talked about or anything you want to say. Question number one is who inspires you um i do <laughs> i find i find great motivation in generosity i feel like as i talk to all these i've been just especially through covid i've been having really deep conversations with so many entertainers about what they do what their process is what their mindset is and and even the most prolific um, entertainers get really stuck when 
they when they are looking at themselves. So I get, even though I said that I'm my own inspiration, um, I am not, it's not about me being self-centered. It's about me thinking about what can I provide for the world? What generosity can I generate? And um, so that's, that's what motivates me. And that's what I find motivates the highest performers in the world is finding some generous motivation, mission. I love that. No one has ever said that before. Amazing. Okay, this is the final question. Again, can go back to anything you want to say. It's not even a question. It's just something to finish. It's simple. Tell me something good. Laura and I have this thing that we, I don't think I've told anybody before, but we call it a pizza house where we, sometimes we, we, we say that we live in a house made of pizza. That's just amazing. And so cool. And other people tell us about their lives and it sounds like they live in a house made of bricks and, um, drywall and stuff like that. And we feel guilty telling people how good our lives are. I get like, I have a fear of losing everything that I have. And I have a fear of, so I, so I have a fear of like really confronting how good my life is sometimes. But if I go back to the generosity thing, I can only be generous if my life is abundant. So I have to set myself up with this abundance mindset. So, um, one thing that I noticed recently is that, so I think that's why I, I think that's why I froze when you said, tell me something good. But one thing I I saw an old picture of me with my wife and I was kissing her on the cheek and I was thinking about how wild and free we were before we were married and how, um, she was hot. Like she's still hot. She's still everything that she was. Um, but at that moment, when I was kissing her on the cheek, I thought this is a temporary girlfriend who's really hot and fun. And, um, she's, when I went on a first date with her, it was like, she was the most beautiful person I'd ever been on a date with. She's the most beautiful person in the world. And, um, at that moment, kissing her on the cheek, I just thought like, this is a temporary thing. This is a cool treat that I have right now in life. And this is great. But um, I didn't expect it to last. And now with like COVID, I've gotten to spend more time with her than ever. Like she and Arlo are, and my dog, Mr. Piggy, we are like in it all the time. And even more than we need to be, we are spending lots of time together. It's incredible. So, um, I just had that moment of seeing that picture and thinking, I can't believe that this continues, that this is good. And this is here and this is for my life and that I deserve this. 
and I am the person who is capable of maintaining this. Thank you, Scott, for sharing your good. Okay, my good friends, are you feeling a little more open to wonder again? Next time on World Gone Good. We shouldn't confuse ageism with ableism. Both of them are bad. There are people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s that confront ableism all the time. We're keeping our back-to-basic good conversations going with my guest, Marianne Alda, who is unapologetically and fiercely aging, and she believes you should do the same. What is good about embracing how many trips we've made around the sun? We're going to find out when we go aging gone good. We also discuss her long acting career, including when she played Diana Ross's cousin in The Wiz, and when she was on one of my favorite now-canceled shows of all time, The Edge of Night. And yes, we do sing the theme song together, so um, get ready for that. I can't wait for you to hear this one. Until then, be good. <laughs>